Amen. You may be seated. Um, I noticed this morning before the service began that we have um, a number of women who are wearing distinctive bows in their hairs and their hair, um, the back of their hair today. And I just want to say a word about that. Um, as I noticed that, um, I immediately recognized what was happening. Um, uh, three years ago this week, um, one of our beloved church members, Jeannie Davis, um, passed away and went to be with the Lord. And um, she wore bows just like that um, every Sunday as she worshiped with us for decades. And um, just want to say, I thank God for Jeannie Davis, for her influence in my life. Um, to be her pastor was a great privilege for the last few years of her life. And um, I'm grateful that we worship not alone, but with all the saints of heaven um, even our sister Jeannie this morning. Last Sunday, um, we began a new sermon series on some of the first chapters of the Bible, Genesis 4 to 12, which described for us the earliest days of human history. Um, as I mentioned last Sunday, the earliest chapters of Genesis, particularly chapters 1 through 11, are written to give us not just some general principles of creation and sin and God's redemption, of the human race, but also to give us the true history of the world, the world's true history. This is important because in the last century, we've seen the rise of a lot of speculation and apparently brand new discoveries about the history of the human race. This is a very debated topic. Well, maybe not so debated, generally speaking, in our culture any longer. You see, over the last 80 years or so, in a novel development, and we need to say this, this is a new development, these uh, modern assumptions about the history of the human race, um, it has been posited and is now assumed, just assumed, right? There's no debate anymore in our newspapers or in museums or in textbooks um, that the human race has evolved from less developed species into pre-human figures, and then finally, slowly, into something like the human beings that we know more or less know today. Um, this means that the modern assumption is not only that human beings evolved themselves very slowly, but that human culture evolved very slowly as well. And I mean very slowly, right? Thou hundreds of thousands, millions of years, slowly um, human beings or proto-human beings began to use stone instruments, then Eventually, agricultural methods develop some kind of language, eventually the capacity for writing, etc. This is the narrative. The idea is that all of this happened, of course, over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, even millions of years. That's the modern story, in essence, of the human race. You can go on Wikipedia, and it is stated as fact, right? This is what happened. In contrast, Genesis 4 describes a very different history of the human race. They, Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden and immediately began to give birth to children who intermarry and have other children and families of their own. It's very different from what is assumed in our culture today, this picture of the human race that's given to us in Genesis. Because in Genesis 4, we're told that human beings who were the special creation of God, made on the sixth day of creation, are immediately capable of language and moral reasoning and all sorts of advanced things. And very quickly, even in that first chapter, Genesis 4, after the fall, are capable of all kinds of technological capacities. For example, we're told in Genesis 4 that the very first generation of human beings 
Adam and Eve and their children, who lived some 6,000 years ago, according to the scriptures. They farmed the ground. They produced crops. They domesticated and herded animals. They built cities, we're told in Genesis 4. They invented musical instruments and sang songs. They forged metal tools of bronze and iron. And though it's not stated explicitly, I suspect they possessed also the capacity for written language. And they wrote down what took place here in their lives and their experience with God. And Moses came along later and used those records to produce the Pentateuch. You see, the story of the earliest days of the human race told by our modern world and the story told by Genesis are very different. We have to say that, acknowledge that. And one story, the modern story, human beings develop very slowly over thousands and thousands or even millions of years. And through a combination of blind chance and their own ingenuity, they become eventually the dominant species on earth. They win, right? In this story, human beings are the center of the narrative. Today, it goes, we possess the capacity to do all these crazy things, right? Fly to the moon, sail the seas of the world, communicate instantly from one another, from one part of the globe to the next. And we can do those things because we have striven with all the other species of the world and we have won. We have been victorious. But in the other story, the biblical story, human beings are the special creation of God. And from the very beginning, they possess, not on their own merit, not because they figured it out, but as a gift of God's grace, the capacity for civilization and everything else. And so with God's grace as the foundation, they, yes, then begin to take dominion over all creation. You see, in this story, human, the biblical story, human beings are still in a privileged position with respect to creation, yes. But how did they receive that privileged position? Not their own ingenuity, not their own strength. It's given to them by God as a sheer gift of his grace. These are very different stories. And they lead to all sorts of different understandings of what human beings actually are and what they're for and how they should relate to God and to one another and to creation itself. And I would argue, friends, that only one of these two stories can be true. There's no way to fit them together. There's no way to compromise and figure out, well, maybe it's partly the biblical story and partly this modern story. No, it's one or the other. And beloved, I would also confidently proclaim to you that the reason why God in his wisdom and providence has given us these early chapters of Genesis is because he does not want us to be left in the dark. He does not want us to be ignorant about our history. He wants us to possess the true history of the world, and so he has given it to us, and we will be wise to receive it in that way. With that in mind, let's listen now again to God's holy and inerrant word from Genesis 4. Our sermon text today is Genesis 4, 2, through the beginning of verse 5, and I'm going to read verse 1 as well for context. Listen now to the word of God. This is what took place immediately after Adam and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. And again she bore his brother, his brother Abel. 
Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Thus far the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us all the scriptures for our learning, and we ask this morning that by your Spirit you would cause us to read, learn, mark, and even inwardly digest these words, this portion of your scripture, that we might grow in wisdom, and that we might might even more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. From the beginning to the end, the main theme of the scriptures is the grace, mercy, and kindness of God. And as we start this morning, the main thing I want to emphasize in this text is how this text overflows with God's mercy and kindness and grace. Here, right in Genesis 4, right after the fall, it is God's grace. This morning, as we heard in our reading from Genesis 1, God made the human race with intention. He made them that they might be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all creation, ruling over creation, and then that they might offer the fruits of that creation back to God with thanksgiving. But we know in Genesis 3 that something terrible happened. Adam and Eve broke communion with God. They rebelled against his rule and rebelled against him in their sin. And as a consequence of their sin, they were sentenced to death. They received God's judgment in the form of curses. And they were driven out of Eden into the wider world. Now the curses in Genesis 3 are interesting in particular because they strike right at the heart of that commission that God had given humanity in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all creation. Think about it. God says be fruitful and multiply. And then to the woman, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, he says, you have pain and difficulty and danger in childbearing, in childbearing and bringing up children. And then to the man, God turns and says, I've, essentially, I've told you, have dominion over all creation. And then he says, now because of your sin, there will be difficulty in working the ground and doing what I've called you to do. But now, what do we read in Genesis 4? It's interesting. What does Genesis 4 start with? It starts with someone having a baby, right? Adam and Eve, uh, Adam knows Eve and Eve bears a son and she bears another son. And those sons grow up to men. And what's the next thing that happens in Genesis 4? Her sons begin to work the ground and have dominion. It's fascinating to me. We can't miss this. God has cursed humanity in Genesis 3. But then right in Genesis 4, at the very beginning, we see them continuing by God's grace to do the things that they've been called to do. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. Even in light of human sin and rebellion, God from the very beginning has no intention of letting his intention for creation get off track. His grace is going to abound. 
despite his judgment of their sin, despite his righteous and just curses that they have received here in Genesis 4, God is already enabling the human race to do exactly what he meant for them to do at the very beginning, to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion over all creation because of his grace. Now, with that in mind, there are several things I think that we learn from this brief passage about what it means to be human in this world and what it means to live with wisdom, with God, and with his creation. The first thing we see in this passage is that we learn that human beings are indeed meant to have dominion over creation. And that have dominion means don't just go out in the world and live in it, but go out in the world and change it. Human beings are meant to change things about the creation that God originally made. They're meant to take the raw materials of the already good creation that God made and glorify that creation, perfect that creation through human activity. That's what having dominion means, going out into the good creation that God has made and glorifying it and making it more and better and bringing it to, an, to, a, to a perfection. Listen again to Genesis 4, verse 2. Um, We read, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Think about for a minute what that means. Adam and Eve, carrying the dominion mandate from God that they received in Genesis 1, are instructing their sons in what they're meant to do with their lives, right? Cain grows up and he says, Dad, you know, what am I supposed to do with my life? You know, like, what am I here for? You know, what's my job? And Adam says... Well, God said, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all creation. So you are going to work the ground. And Abel has a similar conversation. And he says, you're going to herd sheep. This is what it looks like. You're to have, you to have dominion. We're meant to take the raw materials of God's good creation and glorify that creation through our own industry and labor, our patient and faithful work. And so Abel becomes a shepherd. Now, what does it mean to be a shepherd? It doesn't just mean you wander around and observe sheep and eventually, you know, help them or take them or whatever. No, it means you find a ram and you find some ewes and then you breed a ram to the ewes and then the ewes become pregnant and you watch over them through their pregnancy and you make sure they're doing okay. They have shelter and food and water and all that they need to thrive and then the babies come and you help the babies be born and you make sure they don't die. No predators come. And then slowly your herd is going to grow over time if you do that faithfully, right? You are changing things. That's not the natural order of things. You're changing it through your activity, through your behavior. And as you glorify that part of God's creation, those those sheep begin to produce milk and wool and all sorts of good things for you and your family. right, Abel is taking the raw material of creation, these sheep, and through his own human creativity and attention, he's glorifying and maturing what God made in the beginning. In the same way, Cain is carefully observing the way that plants grow. He's looking around and seeing what happens in nature naturally. He's reflecting on the words that God taught his parents when he said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed. Interesting, seed, Cain thinks. What does that mean? That is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. And so Cain begins to understand how seeds work. And so he goes and he harvests seed. He doesn't just let seeds naturally fall wherever they fall. No, he harvests seeds from living plants. And he begins to sow them in the ground. But he doesn't do it randomly or arbitrarily. He does it with intention. Making sure the plants are planted in good places where they'll receive sunshine and water and all that they need to grow. And he protects them from predators and other things would eat the plants and destroy them. 
Over time, he learns more and more what it means to cultivate plants and enable them to grow. And again, this is changing things. This isn't the natural order of things. This is how God made things to start with. Cain is going in, he's making a field where plants grow. And so his family is provided with grain and fruit and vegetables and everything they need to eat. Now, the relevance is this. If you're wondering what your calling is in the world, Genesis 4 describes it for you. It demonstrates it. If you are a human being made in God's image, as all of you are, you are called, like Adam and Eve and their children were, to take the raw materials of God's good creation and glorify and perfect that creation, what God has made through your own creativity, through your own faithfulness, through your own industry. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that all of us are called to raise livestock or be farmers to plant crops, though it is interesting that this continues to be the way the human race is still fed today, right? There's, we still, people raise animals and we eat them. People raise crops and we eat what they plant. Um, it's, it's fascinating that even in our modern age, it's the same principles at work. But all of us are called to have dominion, as Genesis 1 puts it, in some way. Right? For example, we might work in the airline industries. Right? Think about airline. What, what are airplanes? They're the raw materials of creation that human beings have come along and changed and perfected and made fit together in certain ways. And all of a sudden, you know, boom, it's an airplane. But it, it all started with what God made. But then human beings coming along and perfecting it, glorifying it, making it something new. So you might build planes, you might fly planes, you might fix planes, but you're doing all of that as a part of the dominion working activity of the human race so that human race can suddenly travel in all sorts of new and, and incredible ways from place to place around the world. Right? That's taking dominion. Or you might work as a teacher, educating younger human beings in classrooms or in your home. And that, too, is a noble calling, a calling right at the heart of what is happening here. But even that instruction is not just, you know, arbitrary. No, you're hopefully teaching your students about God and his creation and what it means to be fruitful and multiply, what it means to have dominion over everything God has made. You can apply this principle to any worthy vocation, whether you are a poet or a musician or a home builder or a homemaker or an accountant, or a police officer, or a government official, or a nurse, or a computer programmer, or, or lots of other things. You are either directly involved in taking the raw materials of creation and glorifying them through human activity, probably with others helping you, or you are doing those things which are necessary for human beings to engage in that activity, right? You're serving other human beings so they can be about that more directly connected, um, taking the raw materials of creation work. That's what human culture is, us serving one another in that way so that we can do this thing that God says in the beginning, have dominion, be fruitful and multiply. Now that's not to say that all vocations are equally valuable or the same or valid from a biblical perspective. I am not at all convinced, for example, that modern casinos are necessary in any way um, for the great human project of being fruitful and having dominion over the earth. And I never mean that. Um, now, this doesn't mean that a Christian might not at some point, um, because they need to, because it's the only job they can find, find employment at a casino as a way of providing for their family, for their friend, or their family and themselves. But it does mean, when we think about our vocation, we should not just have a strictly utilitarian approach to what we do with our lives, Right? 
In other words, the questions, right, do I like it and does it pay well, are not the only questions that should occur to us when we think about what it is that we should be doing when we evaluate our labor in this world. Rather, we have been given in the scriptures a theological lens for evaluating human work, straight from the scriptures themselves. And the kind of work that we should be engaged in is described in this phrase in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's what we're called to. That is the lens through which we should evaluate our calling in this world. I would love to talk with you if you want to discuss that. But in this short passage, Cain and Abel um, teach us also about the second half of human calling. Right? Even here in Genesis 4, we learn it's not enough simply for us as human beings to take the raw material of creation and glorify that God's good creation through our activity. We also are called to offer the fruits of that work to God, the fruits of our labor, the fruits of our glorification of creation back to God. Listen to verses 3 to 5. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord, to Yahweh, an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now next week we'll consider in some detail why God distinguishes between the offerings of Abel and Cain. We're not going to get into that this morning. Today I just want to emphasize this. What both Cain and Abel are doing here, in terms of offering what they have done with their hands to God, is fitting and right. Offering a portion of what they've done with their hands to God is fitting and right. It's, it's right. Now, it's interesting, God did not, in Genesis 1, explicitly command Adam and Eve to do this, to take the fruits of their labors, and, or a portion of the fruits of their labors, and, and offer it back to him. But as Adam and Cain and, and, and Eve and, and Abel reflected together and, and did theology right there in the very early days of the human race, as they reflected on God's goodness in God's creation, as they reflected on God's graciousness and, and being with them even in their sin, they rightly understood, yes, this is what we need to do, not just work creation, not just be fruitful, multiply of dominion and keep it for ourselves. No, we need to offer a portion of all of that back to God as an act of submission, as an act of thanksgiving, to offer the fruits of their labor, the fruits of creation itself, back to the Lord. They figured this out. The Spirit guided them, and they began to do it, almost instinctively. I mean, it's right there at the very beginning. The very first thing human beings do, they have, a ba they have babies, they grow up, they work the ground, they raise herds, and then the, the third thing they do is they begin to offer a portion of those labors back to God. Now, all of this is made more explicit later in the scriptures. We read about it in Deuteronomy this morning in our second uh, reading. We find that Israel, Moses says, was to go into the promised land and they were to work the ground and glorify it and bring out its fruit. They were to plant crops and prune the fruit trees and dig the copper out of the hills and, and raise herds of goats and cattle and sheep. But then what were they to do with all that? Just consume it all themselves? No, they were to take a portion of the fruit of their labors, and they were to offer those, those, that portion to God as an act of thanksgiving, as an act of submission, as an act of obedience. 
is an act of acknowledging that all that they had, all the fruit of their hands, all that they possessed was not because of their own ingenuity or strength. No, it was all gift. All of it. God had given them these things. God had given them creation. God had given them the specific part of creation that they are in. And he had given them these things because he loved them. And so when Cain and Abel do this, when they work the ground and shepherd sheep and then bring a portion of the fruits of those labors to offer them to God, they are modeling something for us, friends. They are modeling wisdom and faith. They are modeling what it means to live with wisdom and faith in this world. What it means to cooperate with the very grain of creation itself. To live not against the grain, but with the grain of creation. You see, when it works the way it's supposed to, it's this beautiful circle, this elegant and profound loop of God's grace and our thanksgiving, right? God in his kindness and mercy gives us everything that is good, including all of creation. And we, with our hands, work that creation to take its raw materials and we glorify it and we, and we make it better, we make it beautiful, and then we offer a portion of the work of our hands back to God as an act of thanksgiving, as an act of faith, as an act of obedience, as an act of acknowledging that he is the one who is the giver. And beloved, this is why giving a tithe of your labors to God is so essential as a Christian practice. It's not just so that we can have a church building and so that the pastor can have a salary. It's not just some archaic Old Testament law buried in Leviticus somewhere. It's right here at the very beginning of the scriptures. The very first thing that the people of God are doing at the very beginning of the human race. And the tithe is woven all through the rest of the scriptures because when we do this, when we live in this way, when we labor with all the dignity and strength that human beings are capable of, when God's spirit are with them, when we labor in the stuff of God's good creation, And then when we take a portion of the fruit of our labors and offer that portion to God, then we are fulfilling the very vocation for which we were made. This is what we are made for. We are made, as the Lord says in Deuteronomy, to go and bring our burnt offerings and our sacrifices, our tithes and our contribution that we present to God, our vow offerings, our free will offerings, the firstborn of our herd and of our flock. And there we eat before the Lord our God. And we rejoice, and we do, don't we? Us and our households, in all that we undertake, in all in which the Lord our God has blessed us. Beloved, this is the dignity and the beauty of what it means to be fully and truly human. This is the dignity and beauty of living faithfully according to the true story of the world, of the way in which God has made us and has made all things and has given us all of it as a gift to labor faithfully in our vocations and then to offer a fruit of the, I'm sorry, a portion of the fruit of our labor back to God as an act of thanksgiving, as an act of obedience, as an act of faith. This is what it looks like. Let's trust it. Let's walk in these ways. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, indeed, we give you thanks um, for your kindness.
for not leaving us in the dark, for giving us a picture of what it means to be human. We pray you grant us wisdom as we reflect on these things, as we reflect on our lives. I pray you make us faithful, Father. You would give us your grace. You would give us good things to do with our hands. You would give us all that we need to offer a portion of our labors back to you. That you would bless us in this way. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.